My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. Other people make friends. I'm just trying to make a little money. My job, not just to entertain, but to educate, to teach. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. We got to stop fretting about how so much of our gains are concentrated in tech stocks and start thinking about why that's the case and how it may not be nearly as worrisome as you might think. Especially after a day where the Dow gained 224 points, S&P advanced 0.76%, tech-laden Nasdaq jumped 1.12%. It was a wildly positive session that threatens to make the month of January a darn good one. That's right. I say that the market's concentration and fixation on tech's a lot less nefarious than you might believe. That's one of the reasons why we own the Super 6 for my charitable trust, meaning Apple, Amazon, Alphabet, Microsoft, Meta Platforms, and, of course, NVIDIA, which, by the way, is roaring after hours because of a fantastic set of numbers from Supermicro which if you stay tuned, you will hear from later. It will be a treat, but only if you're bullish. I'm also not panicked by the market's supposed lack of breath, because if I had sold out on this fear, I would have missed days like today. A day where interest rates fell dramatically after we learned that the government doesn't need to borrow as much money as we thought. That is terrific news, people, in a market where money managers are very worried about a potential tsunami of government bonds wiping them out. More importantly, I don't worry about the concentration of winners in tech because, alas, the concentration makes sense, and it does so in a really bullish way. See, rather than fearing the narrow breath, you need to know why. It's the client, stupid. That's right. You need to start thinking about what a company makes and whom it makes it for. When we're dealing with tech, their products are largely made for what we call the enterprise, for businesses, not individuals. And the enterprise has a lot of money to spend. But if your clients are hostage to the consumer, you're struggling mightily to make the numbers. In other words, it's not about tech versus non-tech. It's about the enterprise versus the consumer. And I like that dichotomy. I want to start with a shop-worn Magnificent 7, the suddenly atavistic rubric for the winners in the market because Tesla no longer qualifies. We've always thought of Tesla as technology on wheels, a robot car. That's because Elon Musk taught us to think that way. He bridles when people call it a vehicle, which is a consumer product. That was fine as long as demand held up. Now the demand's headed down, and it's no longer technology and wheels. It's a company that sells cars. Cars that are bought by stretched consumers who don't have enough money to afford them, especially because financing charges are so high. Let's go back to that miserable Tesla conference call last week, where Musk wouldn't admit that there are actual demand problems. It reminded me that when you're selling to the enterprise, you don't have to go on and on about affordability. You price your product. And it's usually take it or leave it. And if the product's any good, they take it, especially if you know how to sell. Not so the worried consumer. Tesla actually had a double whammy this quarter. Its enterprise business went off the rails. After Hertz, which had ordered 100,000 Teslas, decided to shed 20,000, a third of the ones that had already taken delivery. Why? Well, they were too costly to repair. There were plenty of repairs given that people, I mean, people didn't really know how to drive them. I know Tesla stock rallied today. Yay. And that makes sense. It's an acolyte stock, a false idol worshipped by growth managers who can't seem to resist but don't really understand anything that I'm talking about. As I see it, someone who wants a Tesla would be willing to buy a used one from a dealer who's helping Hertz unload their excess. But right now, these are a bust at the enterprise level, and they need price cuts to sell more. And they're not getting them. They're not cutting prices like I think they should. 
Compare Tesla's clients to those of, the t- of tomorrow's standout string of earnings. Let's go through them. Microsoft sells the enterprise. I expect them to have a terrific quarter. Companies buy their stuff. Companies use their AI. Individuals are small potatoes for Microsoft. AMD? Enterprise. What's making AMD stock rally so powerfully are its advanced chips that rival NVIDIA's for use in artificial intelligence. AMD has a considerable consumer group, but they don't sell to the consumer. They sell to the PC makers like HP or Dell. Now, you might think that Alphabet's consumer, and you would be wrong. The client is the advertiser, and advertisers see Google as one of the few places where they can reach shoppers without paying through the nose to do so. But Starbucks, for the moment, that's the consumer. Because the consumer is strapped in China, and because many Americans in many, so I should say some Americans, in many cities have been scared away from Starbucks by these pro-Palestinian protesters who don't seem to realize that Starbucks has no real connection to Israel. If the numbers are weak, though, analysts will say, true or not, that the consumer can't afford a $5 coffee and is trading down and away from pricey coffee, which is why we've been telling members of the club, please wait till we see the whites of their eyes. Then we'll make a decision on whether to buy more because it's such a great brand. Or take Thursday, where you got Amazon, Meta, and Apple. You may think that Amazon's all about the consumer, but that's just not the case. Amazon's also about the advertisers and the many businesses that use Amazon Web Services. That's right. It's part consumer, but part big enterprise. Amazon Web Services helps enterprises that want to be in the cloud. You almost never use the cloud except for as a you know, backup for your photos. Companies use the cloud all the time to better serve you. Meta platforms. Again, you probably think, hey, wait a second. You're the client. And that's true if you're buying their VR headsets. But it's not true if you're using Instagram or Facebook. In that case, you're the product. The clients are advertisers trying to reach you in a soft, unobtrusive way. Meta is exactly how I'd like to reach people because it's so targeted as to almost guarantee a good return. But Apple? Consumer. It has very little enterprise exposure, which means it can be vulnerable to the same weakness as Tesla. That's why people are so fearful of a huge guide down. A slashing for the next quarter, not this one. When Apple reports, I'm worried that the bears will get a hold of the release and trash the heck out of it, talking about how a cash-strapped Chinese consumer isn't buying the new phone, while the Vision Pro headsets are too pricey and too unaffordable. Still, I say own Apple, don't trade it. You have to go through this morass every quarter. Now, let's circle back to what I said at the top. Yes, you can argue that this market's way too narrow. I come right back at you and say it's only as narrow as the customer. Right now, businesses are shockingly flush, having refinanced when rates were low, and many are racking up record profits. They aren't burdened by student loans or sky-high inflation or expensive rentals. Companies don't go to the supermarket. They don't pay auto or home insurance. They don't go to the hospital. They are, yes, indeed, flush, while the consumer is indeed cash-strapped. If you're a business, who do you want to sell to? If you're an investor, what company's shares do you want to buy in? Bottom line, it's not about tech versus everything else. Stop that. Get that out of your head. We have a market made up of companies that sell into the enterprise, and those stocks are doing fabulously. Then we have even more companies who serve the consumer which is a much less attractive customer base right now. And their stocks, they're very tough to own. Lucas in Rhode Island. Lucas! Jim, thank you for taking my call. I'm an investment club member. Thank um, you. I'm a little scatterbrained at this point. I'm 32 years old, so I'd like to think I'm long on time. You but, are. Uh, <laughs> but um, I'm wondering about Navitas at this moment. I know it's a little expensive compared to some peers, but I'm looking at future trends, not the current ones. I uh, know, and it does time. have quantum computing, but it's losing a lot of money. Here's my take. If you, if you want to look at future trends, you have to look at current trends. And current trends are for companies like, yes, NVIDIA. They'll figure it out. Jim in California. Jim. Mr. Kramer, thank you for taking my call. 
I'm of interested course. in your thoughts on the golf stock that has been a swing and a miss for me as of recently. Top Golf, Callaway, MODG. With the stock down 30% in the last six months, I'm beginning to worry this is a COVID double bogey, and the new clubs that people bought during the pandemic are just collecting dust in the garage. What are your thoughts? You know, I'm not a good call on this one because I think it should be a good stock. Now, you can say, well, listen, Jim, you know, don't make your judgment now. Take a long-term view. But I thought it would have moved by now. All that said, I'm sticking by it. But again, there are other people obviously more right than I am who uh, would suggest that it's not a good buy. How about we go to Lamont in Tennessee? Lamont. Jim, hey, I need you in Nashville. It's hot chicken week, and this is my second invitation to you. <laughs> you know, I hear you, and uh, my wife's probably going to go there before I am because I'm tethered to the desk. Break, can you get the, get rid of that? Go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> All right, hey, I um, am diversified in my investments, a couple hundred thousand in some uh, indexes, but I have 48000 of mad money that I put into Mercado Libra with a seven-year play on it. What do you think about that? I I think it's an amazing company. Now, first of all, I'm going to go to Nashville at your invitation. I don't know exactly where I'm going to hang out. But I will tell you this. Mercado Libra, I was an original investor in this company, and I could not believe when I had the management team how great these guys are. And, you know, I've never – I had to sell my stock. I can't own stocks. But I have never wavered in my belief that Mercado Libra is really more of an Amazon than it is an eBay of Latin America, and it is a must-own. The market is not about tech versus everything else. It's about the enterprise, which is doing fabulously versus the consumer. This is a... Oh, man, money tonight. Super microcomputer is proving to be super investment. It's up nearly 75% in the last month, and this thing is flying after the close. I'm going to get the latest on the story from the company's top brass, fresh off the earnings. Then speculative investors are shorting grains. Ooh, that could be a risky move. I'm planting some seeds for home gamers when we go off the charts. And the sports world has gone digital with a host of big streaming deals from Netflix to Apple. And with NASCAR getting the action, I'm learning more about the changing landscape with NASCAR President Steve Phelps. What a story. So stay with Framer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Cramer on X. Have a question? Tweet Cramer. Hashtag Mad Mentions. Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com. Or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. hot stocks and then there's super microcomputer the it hardware company that makes advanced servers storage solutions and other tech components all of which are incredibly hot demand in the age of artificial intelligence super micro stock were 246 percent last year even better than nvidia it's already up 74 percent since the beginning of 2024 now much of these gains came in the past week and a half since super micro pre-announced much much better than expected sales and earnings on january 18th management previously been guiding for 2.8 billion in sales for the quarter. Then they said it'll be north of $3.6 billion. Now, tonight we got Supermicro's full quarter of the report. Not only were the results amazing, but they gave very strong guidance for the next quarter and raised their full year forecast substantially. Just one good thing after another with this one, which is why the stock moved up big in after hours trading, taking, by the way, the whole AI complex with it. Don't take it from me. Earlier today, I got to dig deeper with Charles Liang. He's the founder, chairman, president, and CEO of Supermicro Computer. Take a look. 
Mr. Liang, it is marvelous to have you on Mad Money, and congratulations on all your success. Thank you, Jim. Have an opportunity. Oh, terrific. Uh, I know Supermicro one, so to speak, the one that was motherboards, and then I followed two, where you are doing more advanced systems. But we're now in Supermicro three, which I think people should recognize is at the heart of the AI revolution. Uh, yes, we start from motherboard, as you may know, 30 years ago, and then computer system solution, and now we offer complete rack plug and play solution. All of those is to provide a better solution, easier solution to our customer. So customer can build their data center and have their equipment ready to online much quicker than before ever. It is very clear to me when I go to your excellent website, that your customers, uh, whether it be Intel, whether it be AMD, or of course NVIDIA, really cannot do the things they'd like to do as fast or as well or as heat efficient if it weren't for Supermicro. <laughs> yes, thank you to our building block solution. Since I founded Supermicro Day 1, 1993, we built our product based on building block solution. And the building block solution after 30 years of Defining improvement. Now we are able to build a product time to market much quicker than others, and with better quality, better uh, uh, feature, and better inventory leverage. And that's why we are able to build a product, especially new technology, more efficient than others. Well, let's take an example. I remember when Jensen Wang, who is a very old and dear friend of yours, introduced Grace Hopper. And uh, basically a supercomputer that needed Supermicro to be a supercomputer. I thought it would be something that would be introduced in 2025, maybe mid-2024. How many days did it take for you to have a working model that used Grace Hopper? <laughs> you know, because we work with partner very closely, like NVIDIA, we work with them day and night. So when they have a new technology ready, we have our solution ready. So uh, not just solution ready, but better, greener, and total solution uh, for customer right away. So uh, we have been enjoying working with a partner like NVIDIA and other partners as well. And also, we work with customers very closely. So we study what customers need in advance. So when new technology is ready, we call customers, hey, your solution is ready here. That's why, I mean, uh, we keep a very close relationship with all our partners, including customers. And our customers like our solution. So it's kind of a really a happy uh, team. Well, I think also we, sh we should talk about the fact that some people will say, wait a second, that sounds like an expensive solution. But when you consider power consumption, I mean, when you consider the total cost of ownership, even though you are pretty much uh, not white box, you're special. It does seem that there's a value proposition to using Supermicro versus the off the shelf stuff. <laughs> yes, thank you. Because again, building block solution, we are able to build the solution, the platform exactly optimized for customers' workload. 
optimize for their data center environment. And that's why uh, some customers believe we over cheaper solution than others. And yes, it's lower cost because it's more optimized for their workload, for their application. At the same time, because of green computing, uh, we have customers lower their TCO, lower their energy cost, and also help them, help everyone to lower the hub, uh, like carbon footprint. And you know, people all care about how to preserve our planet now. So we are very happy we are able to work with partners to lower their cost and together to lower the carbon footprint. Yes, I know Jensen over and over has expressed that to me, that he, the planet is our most important client, so to speak. Now, in one of the uh, fine videos I watch you, you talked about how this AI revolution, you compared it favorably to the industrial revolution. Now, that's a very, very big bar. Are you that comfortable after seeing how it's going that it will be bigger than the industrial revolution? Oh, very good question. Yes, I personally believe so. Industrial revolution that happened 200 years ago, that have been changing people's lifestyle, changing the industry, uh, offer something better, more convenient, and uh, easier for people. And this AI generation, AI revolution, I believe will create even bigger impact than uh, industrial revolution because AI revolution not just impact so many things that's visible. For example, uh, autonomous driving, for example, chart GDP, industrial automation, and including our job, uh, efficiency optimization, accuracy, uh, more productive, but also impact also something that invisible. For example, help us improve the education system, make kids easier to learn, and for example, improve the medical system, make ourselves become more healthier. Diagnosis is our problem in the advance. So uh, before people got sick, they already know they may get sick a few days later or a few months later, and they can take action to prevent that. So all of those uh, I believe uh, AI revolution will be a impact, big help to mankind. Well, that matters because obviously there's been a lot of equipment uh, that has been bought and bought through you. So if there's that strong a demand, then I will not worry about supply. I want to thank you so much, uh, Charles Liang, for coming on Mad Money, and I hope you will come back. And it's an honor to meet you. Thank you very much. Of Thank course. you for the opportunity for, for me to share Supermarket's position and our belief to the world and provide a, a better solution to the industry so people can save money while we work together to reduce the carbon footprint. Thank you. Mad Money will be back after the break. Coming up, and off the charts that'll have you ringing the dinner bell. Kramer tills the land for bushels of info on commodities. Next. According to last week's core personal consumption expenditures price index, that's a mouthful, inflation is very much moving in the right direction up just 2.9% last month. A lot of that's thanks to lower commodity prices. But when you're dealing with commodities, you need to expect some kind of turbulence, don't you? Any kind of uptick in commodity prices makes it harder for the Fed to cut interest rates, meaning it's something we've got to worry about for stocks 
not just the grains. And that's why tonight we're going off the charts with Carly Garner. She's that brilliant technician who's the co-founder of DeCarly Trading, author of Higher Probability Commodity Trading, and our resident commodities expert who's done so well. Remember, this year, she pretty much nailed both the top in oil and what's increasingly looked like a very solid bottom, too. And right now, Garner says we could be looking at a serious and I think very surprising uptick in the grain complex because grains are simply too hated. Money managers have been shorting them like crazy, betting like shooting fish in a barrel and a huge drop in price. Of course, there's a reason grains are hated. The 2023 crop year harvest lows never materialized. Instead, grain prices have continued to dribble lower throughout the winter. And a more typical year, we'd be looking at a rally during this period. Yet, as we head into February, the grains are only moderately off recent lows. Now, there's a lot going against the grain complex. Technology has made farmers more efficient. New production came online after the grain shortage that resulted from Russia's initial invasion of Ukraine. That was a shocker. And demand from China has softened, something we didn't think would happen. But Garner thinks we could be looking at a grain rally in the not-too-distant future for the simple reason that the vast majority of the pessimists are gone. They've already sold. When you look at the all-important CFTC's weekly commitments of traders data, which shows you where different classes of investors are positioned in the futures market, institutional investors are extremely bearish on corn, soybeans, and wheat. And whenever money managers get too bearish on anything, well, guess what? It tends to find a floor. Yeah. Got me? Let's start with a monthly chart of corn prices paired with CFTC commitment of traders data. See, these, these are the different kinds, and this is the actual commitment of traders' cot report. Garner cares about the green line here, which shows you the net long or short position of speculators, meaning money measures. Right now, she thinks the bears are out over their skis in corn, with large speculators holding more than 146,000 net short positions on corn futures. Are you kidding me? The last time money managers were this negative was in the summer of 2020. Back then, their negativity caused a short squeeze that allowed corn prices to more than double to just under $8 per bushel. It was the type of thing that everybody was talking about, including the Fed, because it meant that things were going to get very inflationary, corn at the basis of so much of our food. Garner doesn't expect another rally of that magnitude, but she believes the short sellers will be given a reason to cover sooner rather than later. She thinks it could be worth maybe a rally of 50 cents to a buck 20 per bushel. Well, guess what? The spot price of corn is at 440 right now. So a dollar twenty move would be huge. It would also be very unexpected, and it would be very inflationary. Now, take a look at the weekly chart of the corn futures. Prior to the commodity chaos of 2021 through 2023, of course, of the pandemic. Garner points out that corn spent a decade trading very comfortably, you know, right between three and four fifty, anti-inflationary. We're now, though, at the high end of the historical range. If you draw an uptrend line from the spring 2020 lows to last week's lows and a downtrend line from the multiple lows made during the past few years, you'll find a nice floor of support. Well, voila, four dollars and thirty cents. That's about a dime below where we're currently at. At the same time, the relative strength index or RSI down here, OK, the RSI. Uh, that's a, a really important momentum indicator that I look at before I make a judgment on most stocks, has been flirting with oversold readings for several months. That's way down here, okay? That means the downside here is probably exhausted. As Garner sees it, between the massive short positions of the corn futures, the powerful floor of support, and the typical seasonal tailwind for the potential for adverse planning and growing weather, we could see a meaningful rally that takes corn to the mid $5 area. At that point, there's a tough ceiling of resistance at 560 where any upturn uh, would, like me, would likely run out of steam. But remember, this is the basis of so much of our food, people. We can't afford to see it rally like that. Now, how about wheat? 
All right, check out the monthly chart with the CFTC's commitments of traders data on the bottom again. All right, now look at this. What we care about is the green line. That represents the net holdings of the large speculators. Right now, they're net short under 33,000 futures contracts, which is a lot less bearish than it was in 2023 when it got to 90,000. But it's still pretty ugly by historical standards. Garner says she can recall only one other time when money managers were so negative on wheat in 2017-2018. Back then, wheat found a floor, although it took a few years of sideways action before the price started chugging higher again in 2020. Put it all together, and while Garner wouldn't buy wheat right here, she thinks that that's enough justification to buy the dips as we advance to the spring. I feel if corn's going to have a big move, you're going to see a big move in wheat. All right, how about the shorter-term daily chart of wheat prices? After the huge spike from the war in Ukraine, wheat prices retreated and stabilized in late 2022 around $6 per share. Okay, so you can see, you can, you know, well, we're, I don't want to give the story away, but you're seeing it developing uh, reverse head and shoulders here. Uh, ever since then, Garner thinks wheat has been putting in some, tri- some sort of triple bottom, or here it is. She calls it an inverse head and shoulders. That's a very li- reliable chart that says that things are going up. As long as the floor support holds at $5.70, she says wheat could at least rebound to what we call the neckline, all right, uh, it, which would be at six sixty. All right. And if we break out of the netline, confirming this is an inverse head and shoulders, one of the most reliably bullish patterns, as I said, that means we could see wheat at seven dollars and sixty cents. Again, you think inflationary. I think the whole floor co- uh, food complex would cost a lot more money. Finally, let's talk soybeans. One of the things that these are most vulnerable is short term weakness. Not, not a believer here. Although when you look at the commitments of traders chart, you can see large speculators are net short for the first time since 2020. That's bullish. And Garner notes that any time speculators get net short soybeans, the result is a rally although not always a sustainable rally. All right, take a look at this, at this daily chart of soybeans future. Soybean future. I know, a lot to work with here, but just a second. Garner predicts more near-term downside, but thinks soybeans can find a bottom anywhere between 11 and 11.80. So we're looking at a bottom here with all these different lines, okay? She's betting it would be around 11.50, where soybeans found a floor of support in the spring. So you go back here, that's where they found the floor of support. If that happens, Garner wouldn't be surprised to see soybeans then rebound up to $13. Again, that would be bad for the Fed. Very close to the 200-day moving average. She doesn't expect prices to exceed that level. But if we do break out past 13, then 14 is in the cards. We don't want to see that either. Garner also notes the relative strength index failed to make a new low. Uh, right here, see that? While the futures price was retesting its prior low, this is what's known as a positive divergence. It means it failed to go down even more. It negative divergence would be down there. Failed, failed to take out that low. Positive divergence signals to her that most of the selling is behind us. I agree. But the bottom line, the charts is interpreted by Carly Garner, who's been so right suggests that Wall Street's gotten too bearish on an incredibly important grain complex of corn, wheat, and soybeans at a time of the year when all three crops tend to trade higher, as the market builds in a premium to account for the risk of something going wrong between now and the harvest. Makes sense to me. That's why she's expecting a grain rally, even if it's only for a few months. Garner expects things could get really ugly for the bears. For now, though, she expects the grains to bounce. And if she right, she'll make it much harder for the Fed to cut rates anytime soon. So the bears get here first. And then the bulls get hurt. But when the bears get hurt, you're going to have more paint the supermarket and the restaurant. And then ultimately, well, let's just say it'll be too late and market will go back down, which I don't mind. But that's not that's not in the, in the cards right now. Let's go to Ed in Illinois. Ed. Booyah, Jimmy Chill. Club hey, man, what's up? And your number one fan. Oh, thank you. Thank you, buddy. That's nice. What's up? Hey, I'm calling about BLDR, Builder First Source. It keeps going up, and I want to add more. Is this a buy, uh, hold, or sell? 
It is, this bank, you know what, I really want this company on, but here's the thing why it's, why it keeps going up. It sells at a ridiculously low multiple versus Home Depot. So what people are doing is saying, you know what, if the Home Depot is doing well, which I think it is, Builders First Source must be doing even better because they manufacture and distribute building products to the professionals, not to the do-it-yourselfers who are not doing a lot of business. This is all pro. The pro part of Home Depot is doing incredibly well. That's why it's going higher. That's why it might continue to go higher. Mike in Michigan. Mike. Hey, Jim. How are you doing? First time caller. Oh, I'm glad to have you on the show. What's going on? Love the show. Listen, I'm 70 years old. I received Chessie Systems as a bar mitzvah gift. What are your thoughts on Chessie slash CSX? Well, I tell you, someone did you a very did, did you a solid. I like Chessie CSX, and I'll tell you why. Because they have a guy, Joe Henris, who is doing such a good job that I think you have to recognize that there's a big change going on in CSX. They're becoming more customer-oriented. They're becoming more detail-oriented. And I'm saying that stock, which is $35.59, is going to $40, and you should feel very good about it. The charts is interpreted by Carly Garner suggest Wall Street's gotten too bearish on corn, wheat, and soybeans at a time of year when all three crops tend to trade higher. And that's why she's expecting a grain rally before a decline. The bears are about to get killed. All right, much more. Mad Money, move over F1. NASCAR season is about to begin. A lot happening. I'm hearing what racing fans can expect this, this year with NASCAR president Steve Phelps. You'll be watching something good cool on Netflix tomorrow. Then there's a host of supply issues that could put a damper on the oil cohort. So is the group still investable? I'm going to give you my take. It's a little surprising. And all your calls rapid fire in tonight's edition of The Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. These days, every streaming service wants in on live programming, especially sports. And one of the most watched sports in America, along with football, is NASCAR, which just reached a new $7.7 billion media deal that includes several exclusive races streaming on Amazon Prime Video. At the same time, there's this new NASCAR docuseries premiering on Netflix tomorrow. NASCAR, full speed. It drops all at once, so get ready for a binge. This weekend, the 2024 season unofficially starts in Los Angeles with a clash at the Coliseum two weeks before the official start of the season, the Daytona 500 on February 18th. So before things get rolling, I got to check in with NASCAR President Steve Phelps earlier. Take a look. Mr. Phelps, welcome back to Man Money. Great to be back, Jim. You guys are crushing in so many different ways. I'm not sure I should start with what's happening this weekend or this incredible deal you just leached with Amazon Prime. And I think because so many people watch Amazon Prime, why don't we go there? Because it's huge. Yeah, so we did uh, meteorite deals at the end of the year. So our incumbents, Fox and NBC, we extended with them. And then we added Amazon Prime and we added uh, Turner, Sport, or Turner Sports, WBD Sports. So... Really excited about what that will look like for us when we come into the 25 season. So, but Amazon specifically, you know, it's our first pure streamer uh, at our, you know, at our premier series level, our cup series level. Uh, we're thrilled to have them. Um, they're, uh, we're great to work with, getting our deal done. Um, and again, we've now combined broadcast, cable, and streaming, or in Warner Brothers Discovery's standpoint, cable and streaming together. But we know this model's worked for Formula One. You guys have been around a lot longer. You've made a lot of money for people. But I want to know, this NASCAR full speed, could that be like the Formula One documentary that got everybody so excited? Yeah, so we're, it drops tomorrow, um, January 30th. We're super excited about it. 
It's uh, five episodes, uh, and it looks at the uh, last 11 races of our season, including our championship. Um, Listen, I'm super biased, but it's spectacular. Is it really? And we think that it will have the same kind of effect on the casual fan, getting people to consider NASCAR as one of their new sports. Well, tell me more about I mean, is it. Are, are all five coming out or go one? Yeah, they're all coming out. Uh, so you can binge tomorrow. Fantastic. And we're, we're um, it's just fantastic. They, they're, uh, the company that did that, Words and Pictures, who produced it, they're, they're terrific. And Netflix, that was their choice for us. Um, and they did a tremendous job. And it's just, it's kind of like the F1 thing. It's visually exciting, but we've got great storylines, you know, the personality development, um, you know, and just seeing the cars on the racetrack and the crashes and all of it and as the story so, developed. So even if you watch every single race, you're still going to think it's just a great narrative. Absolutely. That is fantastic. Now tell me about, I watched the ads this weekend for Daytona 5. I never missed yeah. Daytona because that's how, that's how the season starts. But no, not this. You got Clash. Now this is something for this weekend to so get people's appetites wet. It is. So it's an exhibition event. So we built a track uh, inside the L.A. Coliseum. So this is actually the third year we've done it. So there's a quarter-mile racetrack in there, you know, kind of tight quarters in this, you know, iconic facility that's a century old. It's just a, it's a really neat event and a little more, um, a little more casual than the Daytona 500, where the stakes are obviously really high. But you don't mind doing street races either, do you? Well, so last year, um, last year was our first ever street race in the streets of Chicago um, around July 4th. And other than the biblical rain, we had seven inches of rain on that Sunday. Uh, but we got it in. It was a phenomenal event as the sun was setting over the, you know, over the skyscrapers of Chicago. The city embraced us. Uh, it was a great look for the sport. Uh, 80% of the people who purchased tickets there had never been to a NASCAR race. So it was a special race. And we're going to go back there. Uh, in July again. Well, you know, that's important because we did, we've always been close to NASCAR. We did yep. many, many years ago, we did a special with NASCAR. And it, it, it had this rural roots idea. But Chicago tells me that that's just, it's a national idea. It's not a rural roots idea. Yeah, so I, we're trying to balance things, right? So we went to North Wilkesboro last year, which is a historic track. Right. We hadn't been right. there in 30 years, which is where our all-star event was. We're going to go back there as well. We have a new track uh, a new facility on the track, Iowa, that um, will be this summer as well. We've never raced there in our Cup Series, so the good folks from Iowa will be thrilled to have us there. And we're, uh, we're trying to keep things fresh and moving. So, yes, true to, you know, kind of the history of NASCAR and the DNA, but the new NASCAR also is doing things that are bold and innovative and things that haven't been done before, like the Chicago Street Race. We're going to do it this year without the rain, though. All right, I hope so. I hope so. Now, you're still doing the 200-mile-an-hour uh, billboard. I mean, that is still the best way it to is. connect with how many people in this country? Yeah, there's 80 million fans um, consider themselves fans of the sport. Um, we're going to build on that and build on and build on that. So our attendance is up. Our ratings is up, are up. We're, we're having a moment, and we just got to keep it going. I remember speaking to your advertisers, the return on investment. Now, we know, look, it's great. If you get a targeted ad on Amazon, they come and they press is one thing. But just in terms of branded advertising, people always tell me it is still the single best way to get your name out there. Yeah, I think people think of a sponsorship and it's synonymous with NASCAR. I think the reason why is because we have quality fans. It's not the quantity of fans. And quality, what I mean by that is they understand the importance of sponsorship. Right. to our sport. And so they support brands that support their drivers or their racetracks or NASCAR. Um, and they go 
invest in it, right? They, they support them with their wallet. Now, because of where you are exclusively, because you had relationships with linear TV, so to speak, sure. are you surprised about an Amazon, Netflix being so interested? And is that the future? So I think it's... Uh, I don't know what the future is. Okay, that's I, good. I, I don't actually, I'm I, kind I of know. good to keep it open. So ended. linear television is super important, right? So we have yeah. broadcast, we have cable, and now we have, as I said, a, a mixture of cable and, uh, and streaming from Warner Brothers Discovery. But Amazon's, from a sports standpoint, is here to stay. Um, what they've done with the NFL, obviously what they're going to do with us, there'll be other sports properties, I'm sure, that they will, they will bring into the fold. They do a great job. No, um, you do a great job. I want to congratulate you. Since I've seen you last, this is amazing. And you've gone and taken the next level. I'm a huge believer in streaming. I think you're going to crush it. All right? Thank you, Jim. That's Steve Phelps, president of NASCAR. Mad Money is back after the break. Coming up, pop open those umbrellas and tee up your toughest questions. Kramer takes on all comers in the lightning round. Next. You say the name of stock. I said bye bye bye. So I don't know the cause of the stock was dead. My step is good. You play the sound. And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready, Ski? Dad, cover the lightning round. I'm going to start with Steve in Indiana. Steve. Hi, Jim. I've been following you since your days with Larry Kudlow. My um, old friend Liar. My my stock in October of 2022 is at 549. Today it closed at 438. I still am getting a 6% dividend yield, even at the 438 level. The stock I'm calling about is Northrop Grumman. Oh, is it? You know, I got to tell you, Steve, this has got to be one of the most hated stocks. Every morning I come in and somebody says, cutting numbers, cutting price, all right, cutting numbers, cutting price, all right. I, at this point, am willing to go against them and say that at 438, I'm finally ready to pull the trigger, at least on a quarter, point, quarter of a position. It's just too low. I want to go to Sandra in Ohio. Sandra. Booyah, Jim, from Youngstown, Ohio. I've been there, and it's actually quite nice. Well, thank you. We love our town. Yep. Love it. Long-time listener, huge fan. Oh, thank you. My question would be, uh, what is your opinion on John Dean technology? You know, I remember this. This, I regarded this as like an investor business daily stock. I, I actually am quite fond of this company. I wish they would come on the air. It's a little quirky, but it's good. And, I, you know, global industrial food has always been one of my faves. I need to go to Oren in New York. Oren. Hey, how you doing, Jim? I'm doing all right. How about you, Oren? I'm pretty good, pretty good. All right. Well, well I'm I mean. Really good. Okay, well, I'm what's the really matter? Good. What's the matter? AMC, AMC has got me in a hole. I, uh, I but you're really not doing well at all. No, we don't want Oren. Oren, we don't want AMC. AMC is not doing well. We want stocks to go higher. And, uh, you know, I'm not saying you have to go by super microcomputer, but let's understand the consumer's not going to the movies like they used to. Why not go buy Netflix? A little, a little antidote to the, to the uh, I've been right every time. Okay, I'm going to Mandy in Maryland. Mandy. Hello, Professor Kramer. Well, thank Long you, Mandy. Long viewer. Thank Excellent. you for taking my call and teaching us how to invest and become better investors. That's the goal. That's the goal. Thank you. And I shout out to your staff and uh, you all. Thank you. Staff is I brilliant. I was wondering, should I hold on or sell PCOR? 
That's a very, very expensive stock. I mean, I've looked at that company a lot and don't understand why it could be this expensive, given the fact that we aren't making any money. So I say ka-ching, ka-ching on some of that one, all right? And thank you for the kind words. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by Charles Schwab. Coming up, how the game has changed for oil, China, Russia, and the squeeze on U.S. energy stocks explained next. will go higher some way, somehow. But as long as the Russians are able to ship crude through the Suez Canal, as long as the U.S. produces 13.3 million barrels, a new record, and as long as China remains in slowdown mode, there simply isn't enough demand to meet the surging supply. Well, I think that oil can bounce here. That might not do much for the oil stocks, because each one of these supplies just keeps putting a damper on the whole group. That's why, despite what seems like constantly escalating Mideast tensions, I haven't been willing to pound the table in the oil stocks to you, a position quite at odds with history. Right now, for example, Russia needs to fund its war against Ukraine. The West thought it could impact Russia with all those sorts of sanctions, but Russia's still allowed to export oil to all countries like in China and India, and Russia produces 10.6 million barrels a day. That can finance a war and then some. This weekend, I read that the group which has made Red Sea shipping so dangerous, the Houthis, don't want to hit Russian tankers with their missiles, at least not intentionally. So far, they've mistakenly shot at two of them. But they have a deal with Russia to let their oil go through. At the same time, our domestic producers have stepped up to pump a record amount, and they could do more not good for pricing. It's the demand side, though, that's the real issue. China's economy is growing so slowly that it can't use as much oil as Russia pumps. China buys 47% of that. India takes 32%. rest is scattered among a handful of countries. It wasn't always like this. In 1973, OPEC slapped our country with an oil embargo after we resupplied Israel during the Yom Kippur War. That led to the price of oil to more than triple from $2.90 to $11.65 as we frantically attempted to replace the lost OPEC crew with other sources. At the same time, the U.S. produces 9.6 million barrels a day then and imported 36% of our oil. Now, though, when you factor in imports from Canada, our country is energy self-sufficient. That makes an oil spike almost an impossibility without Russian cutbacks. And as long as the war rages, they can't afford to cut back or you need the Chinese government to stimulate their economy with something dramatic, theoretically possible. But the Communist Party hates most stimulus, and I can't see them doing enough to really bolster the price of oil. It's true that non-Russian oil tankers have been going around the Cape of Good Hope, and that can drive up the price of some imported goods, but not by as much as you think. Insurance and shipping costs have spiked. Great for the tanker stocks, by the way. But again, it's not changing things too dramatically. Besides this one-off, I know that many of you who lived through the gas lines of the 70s can't believe that oil isn't flying higher, given what's going on in the Middle East. It actually went down! But Russia and the United States are in charge of pricing these days, not OPEC, which, by the way, is showing no signs of wanting to hit us with an embargo. They don't seem to mind that our government's once again resupplying Israel just like it did 50 years ago. And even if OPEC did, did mind, they don't have the juice to do anything about it. Without a spike in demand, not a cutback in supply, oil's going to be constrained. The oil stocks will not make you the fortunes they used to with this identical set of circumstances for the past 50 years. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise I'll find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer. See you tomorrow. Last call starts now. 
All opinions expressed by Jim Cramer on this podcast are solely Cramer's opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, or their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by Cramer on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Jim Cramer as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. Cramer's opinions are based upon information he considers reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries will warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Mad Money Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Mad Money Disclaimer.